अखंडम सच्चिदानंदम अवांगमनसगोचरम आत्मानम अखिलाधारम आश्रये भीष्ट सिद्धई so we are studying the Vedanta Sara, and uh, I believe we were on text number twenty-nine. We had done. What is the purpose of this study? What is the whole purpose of this exercise, uh, studying Vedanta? This text, which is an introduction to Vedanta, what's the purpose of studying this or the whole of Vedanta? And the point is, he says, uh, uh, removal of the ignorance about our real nature. Swaswarupa Agyana Nivritti to, to remove the ignorance about our real nature. And then what's the point of that? What good is it? Suppose, um, I mean, the first objection would be, I know myself, I know who I am. And Vedanta claims now that you do not know really who you are. And uh, we can show you that you are deeply mistaken about yourself. So if you know your real nature, then what would be the use? I mean, one objection could be, I know myself, and it doesn't, that does not seem to help me. I still am suffering, and I still have so many limitations. So the um, answer was, ananda vapti, attainment of bliss, overcoming of sorrow. So that is the purpose. And here it is not mentioned, but uh, in general, the idea of enlightenment leads to liberation from this cycle of birth and death. So this is how... Uh, most Indian philosophies would see the whole uh, problem of human life. That not only this life, but we are stuck in this situation. We have gone through it many times and we are going, we are destined to go through this many times again, some variation of this kind of life until we attain uh, liberation. How do we attain liberation? In Advaita Vedanta. All other uh, the philosophies have the same framework that we are in suffering and the suffering is not limited to one life. It's been there long, for many lives and it will continue unless we do something about it. In the Advaitic perspective, the whole problem is we do not know our real nature, which is actually free. So once we know our real nature, that we are this uh, infinite being awareness, we will realize that we are free and we will actually be free of suffering and attain fulfillment. So put it brief briefly, attainment of fulfillment, overcoming of suffering is the goal of Vedanta. And that's the purpose of studying these texts also. The next section is, uh, 30. It talks about a guru, a teacher. Why is a teacher important? A teacher is important in all Indian spiritual traditions, but especially in Advaita Vedanta, where, um, uh, you know, because, probably because Advaita Vedanta is a knowledge system. It's a knowledge-based approach. So text is important and the teacher is important because you're supposed to study this carefully and think about it and clarify resolve your doubts and finally get a conviction, clarity, ultimately enlightenment. Uh, there, the, the role of the teacher is vital, especially in think of those days, long before there were written texts available. The teacher was the only way you would get, get an access to this knowledge. Because the text was entirely in the teacher's head. So you'd have to go to a teacher and listen. Even today, when these texts are available, it is still highly advisable to listen to it and to study it with somebody who is of the lineage, who has, uh, I, I don't have to say that you have to go to a person who's enlightened, how would we know? But somebody who is committed to the lineage, who is well-versed in this knowledge and can transmit it to you. So a teacher is always important. 
beyond this very practical very logical reason knowledge system requires text teacher therefore teacher is very important beyond this generally in all indian spiritual traditions um, a spiritual teacher a guru has a, a, a tremendous role as a spiritual mentor as a guide as a spiritual protector um as a person who shows, shows the path who has walked along the path uh, before us and can show us uh, the you know the the dangers ahead how to tackle them all these things so a teacher is known as um the is revered because the teacher is the manifestation of the power of grace so god is gracious and the highest form of grace is spirituality enlightenment freedom from from samsara that's the highest function of grace and a manifestation of this power of grace in sanskrit anugraha shakti the power of grace uh, comes through the teacher so god's grace operates through the teacher that's why the teacher is so revered i think it's kabir das um, who sings guru gobind dono khade that guru and uh, guru and krishna spiritual master master and god both are in front of me whom should i bow down to first whom should i show respect to first well it is only by the grace of the guru that i am able to see krishna i am i've got the vision of god so my first salutations go to the guru because of the grace of guru that i, I am able to realize god see god or attain enlightenment so this is the importance of the guru let us see what this text says there's a couple of uh, texts uh, about the guru i am reading out text number 30 i am adhikari janana marana adi samsara anala santapto deepta shira jalarashim eva jalarashim eva upahara pani shrotriyam brahmanishtam gurum upasritya tam anusarati तद्विज्ञानार्थम स गुरुमेवाभिगच्छेत समित्पाणि श्रोत्रियं ब्रह्मनिष्ठम इत्यादि श्रुतेः व्हाट डज दिस मीन सच अ क्वालिफाइड पीपल स्कॉर्च्ड विद द फायर ऑफ एन एंडलेस राउंड ऑफ बर्थ एंड डेथ एटसेट्रा शुड रिपेयर जस्ट एज वन विद वन्स हेड ऑन फायर रशेस टू अ लेक विद प्रेजेंस इन हैंड टू अ गुरु स्पिरिचुअल गाइड लर्नड इन द वेदस एंड एवर लिविंग इन ब्राह्मण एंड सर्व हिम as the following and other shruti say this is a quotation let him in order to understand this repair with fear in hand to a spiritual guide who is learned in the vedas and lives entirely in brahman so what does this mean um it says i am adhikari i am i am just translating the words of the text i am adhikari means this qualified student what kind of qualified um, person what qualities are required we have already done that we have seen the fourfold qualities this person what does it what does this person do guru mupasritya i'm jumping ahead approaching a guru approaching a teacher why does this person approach a teacher um he says anala santapta as if burning with fever or burning with a fire being scorched as if scorched scorched with what suffering what kind of suffering janana maranaadi samsaranala the fire of samsara which consists of the cycle of birth and death 
much it's a good thing being born not necessarily um, it, it brings you the infinite being within the limitations of a particular body and then uh, you're subjected to all the sufferings of samsara not once many times uh, without cease adi etc etc means not just birth and death but whatever takes place specifically whatever takes place within birth and death so uh, sickness and uh, old age and misery and failure and frustration all kinds of sufferings santapta this is compared to a fire anala anala means fire compared to a fire santapta tortured by this scorched by this and he gives an example deepta shira jalarashem eva just as a deepta shira means just as a person who's got fire on the head now why a person would have fire on the head is a different matter but suppose uh, a hair has caught fire now what would the person do is rushing to find a lake jalarashi a pond or a lake where he can dive in and and cool himself and you know like put out the fire just like that with that kind of burning desire um, another example which is often given is this a guru had a student a disciple who after many years complained that i'm not making progress in spiritual life I'd, i haven't seen god yet and the guru when will i see god and he pestered the guru like that so one day the guru said come with me and they go to the river and the guru takes him and dunks the student in the in the water and keeps him down under water very soon the student is struggling um, trying to come out to to gasp for breath and then finally the guru lets him go and the student comes up and gasps for breath and catches his breath after some time the guru says how did you feel oh i would have given anything for a breath of air for a gulp of air um, i was dying the guru says when you feel like that for god you're going to realize god so that that's another similar example approaches the guru what kind of guru uh, shrotriyam brahmanishtam so these are from the upanishads which describe what are the qualifications of the guru usually three are mentioned shrotriyam brahmanishtam akamahata shrotriyam means the person must be um, okay backing up one might say that well what i want for in a guru is an enlightened person is going to teach me about brahman i would want that guru to be you know enlightened realize brahman the problem is we don't know how do you know how do you test and such people are very rare and far in between if that would de- uh, my enlightenment would depend upon being the student of an enlightened teacher that would be very difficult so what then but are there any criteria at all yes there are criteria so what are the criteria uh shrotriya means shruti the word shruti means the vedas specifically here vedanta the shrotriya means well versed in vedanta well versed in the fundamentals of vedanta so a person must be learned in at least here in our case advaita vedanta the tradition of advaita vedanta um why why does a person have to be learned why not just enlightened person may be personally i mean the person could be enlightened um but might not be really able to help all kinds of spiritual um, inquirers so that's why um, sri ramakrishna is to put it this way what is the use of studying so much and learning so much he said that a person uh, who wants to kill himself can do so with a nail you know uh, just a, just a piece of iron can kill oneself but if you want to fight with enemies and defeat enemies you need a sword and a shield and all that 
So that's an example of how much um, depth, learning, clarity is required to deal with, to help uh, seekers of all kinds, of um, all different stages, all kinds of mentalities. You have to deal with all of that. So one needs needs this this thing. That's why disciples of Sri Ramakrishna, when they founded the monastery, you notice they are engaged in meditation and prayer and intense spiritual practices, but a lot of study also, a lot of study, uh, which is what helped Vivekananda later on in this country. So anyway, so Shrotriya, the first one is the teacher must be well-versed in a more general way. Now, if we just expand beyond the confines of Advaita Vedanta, at least well-versed in that teacher's lineage, in that teacher's tradition. So if I'm going to a bhakti teacher, I would want that teacher to be well-versed in the bhakti traditions. Um, uh, so like that. That's one, Shrotriya. The second one is Akamahata. Akamahata means, uh, literally that means not wounded or not damaged by desire. So the person, the teacher must not want anything from me, the student, other than my own welfare. So the teacher must not be after money or power or any kind of other motive. You know, often you see these cults um, which are associated with religion, especially in this country, but in India also. So one person is venerated as the teacher and it's all about the teacher's personality. And there are hundreds, if not thousands of people sort of blindly following a teacher. That is not a good sign. That's not a good sign. That's not uh, the approach in Vedanta. The teacher should not have anything to gain personally from this teacher-student relationship. It should be uh, all about giving knowledge, transmitting this so that the student can attain enlightenment. There's a very nice example given about the teacher-student relationship. So there is the, what is called the philosopher's stone. Uh, in, uh, in India, it's known as Parasmani. You know, there's like a special thing which if it touches uh, ordinary metal, it, it um, converts it into gold. So if you, if you touch anything with that, it converts it into gold. Well, the guru is something greater than this. Uh, it's it's uh, the guru converts you into a guru, it makes you enlightened and gives you the knowledge. So it's, it's a philosopher's stone can only convert ordinary things into gold, but not into another philosopher's stone, into another parasmani. But the guru does that, brings you up to uh, the guru's level. That's what the guru does. And uh, the third, the third quality which is mentioned here is Brahmanishta. Brahmanishta literally means being established in Brahman, or as it is translated here, living in Brahman or being established in being established in Brahman would mean the person is completely dedicated to spiritual life. That the person is dedicated to a life of, you know, Advaita Vedanta would mean Shravana, Manana, Nididhyasana, the constant cultivation of this knowledge and the transmitting of this knowledge. And uh, you can see, it's not a part-time teacher. It's not, um, uh, you know, somebody going to give you a degree or somebody giving you a crash course for hundreds of dollars. Not like that. Uh, this is the whole life of the spiritual teacher. The, spirit, the teacher is completely dedicated to spiritual life and nothing else. These are good, three good signs. So one is, uh, must be well-versed in the texts, in the tradition. Second is that uh, must not have any ulterior motive, any other, especially any worldly motive. Third is that uh, the teacher uh, must be Brahmanishta, established in Brahman, established, let us say it, established in the spiritual life. That must be the whole 
purpose of that the teacher's life. Um, it it must be, must begin and end there. Nothing else is there in the teacher's life except that. So, um, such a teacher, upasitya, um, approaching such a such a teacher, and then tan anusarati follows such a teacher. How do you approach? Upaharapani with gifts in hand. So there was, there was a formal way of approaching a teacher in in Vedantic times. I mean in Vedic times, uh, where what you would do is. Uh, you, the teacher, the, the student who wants to learn from a teacher would go to the ashram, which would be a, usually a forest hermitage, and would go to the sage of the ashram, would bow down, and would offer among the gifts would be a bundle of firewood. Why a bundle of firewood? Because the ashrams would, you know, they perform the Vedic fire rituals. So I am bringing this to support your ashram. Basically, symbolically, that I am bringing what the ashram needs. Um, so I am offering this, but that was that was the original idea in Vedic times. Student would bow down and offer a bundle of firewood, and this would be a signal. This would be signal that I am here to learn Vedanta. Why? This is this actually it 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 directly refers to one of the Upanishads. That's what is being quoted here from the Mundaka Upanishad. Tad Vigyanartham sa Guru me. This is from Mundaka Upanishad. The student. For enlightenment, for the purpose of enlightenment, vijnana, guru meva vigachit. One should approach a guru. How? Samitpani with firewood. So that explains this translation. One might find it peculiar. Why would you go to the guru? Repair to the guru is old English. That is approach the guru. Why would you go to the guru with fuel in hand? Like would you go there with gasoline or something like that? No. Uh, the whole point was to approach with. The firewood, which was used for the Vedic fire rituals in the ashram, um, I explained this in uh, Hollywood once in the ashram there. And next day in the morning, when I opened my door, there was this bundle of wood outside, my, nicely uh, tied up in uh, cloth uh, outside my door. <laughs> Somebody took it very literally, so they, they gave me this firewood. I told this story to Swami Chetanandaji, and he said. Well, you know what happened to me many, many years ago when he came to USA in the early 70s. So he gave a talk about um, the, you know, there's a, in the same Mundakopanishad, there's this description of the bow and arrow. So and there's a whole, you know, it compares archery to spiritual life. He, he described that. And next day in the morning, he found a bow and arrow outside his <laughs> door. So... This is the quotation. Ittyadi Shrutehe means, Shrutehe means from the Shrutis, from the Upanishads. I'm quoting from the Upanishads. Ittyadi, this and at others, etc. And one more supporting text is given, 31. Sa Guru Paramakripaya Adhyaropa Pavada Nyayena Enam Upadishati. Such a Guru by is out, out of utmost grace, Paramakripaya, Enam Upadishati, teaches the student. How does he teach the student? The method is given. By the method of superimposition and desuperimposition. What's that? We'll see. That's very crucial. We'll see that today. And again, he quotes from the same thing from the, from the same section of the Mundaka Upanishad. I'm on text number 31 now. Here is the quotation. Tasmaisa vidwan upasannaya samyak 
ಪ್ರಶಾಂತಚಿತ್ತಾಯ ಶಮನ್ವಿತಾಯ ಯೇನಾಕ್ಷರ ಪುರುಷಂ ವೇದ ಸತ್ಯಂ ಪ್ರೋವಾಚ ಹೃದಯ this method of superimposition and desuperimposition is the heart of vedanta what is going on in vedanta is basically this superimposition desuperimposition swami vivekananda calls it hypnotization dehypnotization we have been hypnotized all that vedanta tries to do is dehypnotize us um so what is this and how does it work we must have a full grasp on this because the rest of the book is just about this what will go on from now on will be this superimposition and desuperimposition um let me just read verse number a uh, text number 32 and then i will uh, explain so just like uh, as always the author uses a new term and then defines it is defined superimposition desuperimposition so first he has to define superimposition text 32 asarpabhutayam rajjau ಸರ್ಪ ಆರೋಪವತ್ ವಸ್ತುನಿ ಅವಸ್ತು ಆರೋಪ ಅಧ್ಯಾರೋಪ ಸೊ ದಾನ್ಸ್ಕ್ರಿಟ್ ವರ್ಡ್ ಫಾರ್ ಸೂಪರ್ ಇಂಪೋಸಿಷನ್ ಇಸ್ ಅಧ್ಯಾರೋಪ ಅನದರ್ ವೆಲ್ ನೋನ್ ವರ್ಡ್ ಇಸ್ ಅಧ್ಯಾಸ ವೆರಿ ಇಂಪಾರ್ಟೆಂಟ್ ವರ್ಡ್ ಅ ಕೀ ವರ್ಡ್ ಇನ್ ಅದ್ವೈತ ಫಿಲಾಸಫಿ ಅಧ್ಯಾಸ ಇಟ್ ಸಿಂಪ್ಲಿ ಮೀನ್ಸ್ ಸೂಪರ್ ಇಂಪೋಸಿಷನ್ ಸಿಂಪ್ಲರ್ ವರ್ಡ್ ವುಡ್ ಬಿ ಎರರ್ ಮತ್ ಸಿಂಪ್ಲರ್ ವರ್ಡ್ ವುಡ್ ಬಿ ಎರರ್ so what what does it what does this say 32 asarpa bhutayam rajyo sarpa aropavat vastuni avastu aropa adhyaropa is the superimposition of the unreal on the real like the false perception of a snake in a rope which is not a snake now a rope the classic vedantic example advaitic example this is a rope maybe in the semi darkness and i do not see that it's a rope but when i look at it i suddenly see it's a snake obviously i'm making a mistake um it's a rope i don't see that it's a rope i see something is there i see something is there and look look closely or look look at it once more i say it's a snake now there is no snake there i'm making a mistake so what has happened here and then later on of course i take a close look and i say oh it's not a snake uh, it's a rope now what has happened here superimposition and desuperimposition um well, how does this superimposition the first part of it happen what happens is there's some reality say a rope next the rope is unknown i don't know it as a rope i just know it as something and then and then i make a mistake third what happens next uh, next what happens is a mistake rope 
not known as a rope, known as a something there, and I look there, and then the next thing is a, is a mistake. Oh, it's a snake. And everything that is consequent upon the mistake. It could, they could, you could be scared, you could shout in fear, or your heartbeat could, heartbeat could increase, whatever, depending on the mistake. And then what happens next? You take a closer look, you examine it. And by examining it, you realize it's not a snake. The error is corrected. You realize it's not a snake, it's a rope. This realization it's not a snake, it's a rope is called desuperimposition. In Sanskrit, apavadaha. Apavada means negation or desuperimposition. Superimposition, desuperimposition. Don't be fooled by the term imposition, superimposition. Imposition might be that you put something on something. Here is um, a book, I'm putting a pen on it. But it's not like this. It's not that there is a rope and you put a snake on it. Um, superimposition is taking something to be what it is not. Taking something to be what it is not. That is superimposition. That's not a physical imposition. You're not putting something, when you, the way it is said, uh, superimposition of the unreal on the real, superimposition of a snake on a rope. It's not that you take a snake and put it on a rope. Uh, it is, we take the rope to be a snake. We mistake the rope to be a snake. That is superimposition. And correction of this error is called desuperimposition. In Sanskrit, adhyaropa apavada. So what does this have to do with us? It goes like this. This story I had told once is uh, particularly useful here. Of the donkey. You know, the Indian washerman uh, goes around collecting clothes. And uh, so he'll turn up at your house. He usually has a donkey. And he'll take your dirty laundry and put it on the donkey and collect, go around the neighborhood, go back home. And then they will go to the river uh, bed or the river, uh, bank of the river, the washerman, and unload the donkey. Um, and then wash clothes, dry the clothes. It's a day-long process. And then once the clothes are dried, fold them all and then put, put them on the donkey and come back home. And the next day he will go around on his rounds and distribute the clean clothes, return the clean clothes to you. So you can see the donkey is very important for, for all of this. Now this washerman, he went with his laundry to, to the river to wash the clothes and with, with a donkey and he comes there to the river bank when he unloads the clothes and then to his horror, he realizes he has forgotten to get the rope with which to tie the donkey. Now he can't take his clothes to the river and wash the clothes because the donkey will wander off. And if he loses the donkey, he's a poor man. He is uh, desperate while a wise person walks past. He, what, what is your problem? Why do you look so desperate? Oh, sir, the trouble that I am in. Uh, if I go back home now, a little bit, the whole day will be wasted. But I can't have, I will have no peace of mind when I'm washing the clothes because the donkey, I may lose the donkey. I'm a poor man. It will be disastrous for me. And this wise person says, oh, don't worry. You just pretend to go through the motions of tying the donkey uh, as if you already you have the rope, now just try to, the, yeah, tying the donkey to the tree. Just pretend as if you have a rope. Will that work? Yes, it'll work. And this man ties it. You know, he's tying the donkey as he sort of pretends. There's no rope. And he looks at the donkey and the donkey looks at him. That uh, watches him carefully. And then having done that, he walks backwards slowly watching the donkey and the donkey is watching him, but doesn't make a move, doesn't move a muscle. The donkey is standing there as if it's tied. 
And slowly this man gains confidence in this and he goes and starts washing clothes and once in a while looks back, the donkey standing there, eating grass, not going anywhere as if it's tired. In the evening, he goes, loads the clothes on the donkey and says, up, let's go back home. And the donkey doesn't move. Now he is in trouble. He realizes what the problem is. The donkey thinks it's, it's tied. But how does he get the donkey to move? It was a real rope. He could have at least untied it. There's no rope. How is he going to get the donkey to move? And uh, then he runs to that wise man's home and says, Sir, what trouble you have put me in? Now I can't get the donkey to move. He said, that's so easy. Just pretend to untie it. Make sure the donkey sees you. He goes back and he pretends to untie it, opens the rope as if there's nothing there. The donkey watches and he says, Hop, let's go. And the donkey starts walking. Okay, so this is superimposition and desuperimposition. Nothing happened. But the donkey felt it was bound and the donkey felt it was liberated. May sound funny, the joke's on us. We are like that. We are like that donkey. According to Vedanta, nothing is the problem right now. But you feel that you are um, suffering. And that is absolutely evident to us that we are in sorrow and we are in misery. And what is the way out of this? No matter how much Vedanta tells you, you are the infinite existence, consciousness, bliss. That doesn't sound like anything within my experience. So Vedanta has to go through this process of showing you how we came, showing us how we came to be in this state. Start from the absolute. Show us how we came to be this in this bound state. That is tying the donkey. And then from this state, Show us the way out to realize how we are Brahman right now. We are absolutely free. Things are perfectly all right uh, right now. That is the disuperimposition, untying the donkey. That is called Adhyaropa Apavada. Part of it is the first part of it we have already done. Vedanta just has to track the disaster that we have done. We'll see, begin to see how we, we have come to, to come to be in this state. Vedanta will show us that and then show us the way out of it. And at the end of it, we will realize, oh, it was perfectly all right. So in, in the Himalayas, they say, what does Vedanta do? Praptasya prapti, nivrittasya nivritti. What does it give you? It gives you what you've already got. What does it remove? What trouble does it solve? It, it, what does it remove? It removes what was never there. <laughs> samsara, you never had samsara. You are Brahman, you never had samsara. It's not that you will, after enlightenment, one begins, one realizes, Oh, I was in samsara. There was so much trouble. Now I'm free of it. Thank God. No, I realized I never was in samsara. This cosmic joke. But the thing is, we are playing the joke on ourselves. And it's not very funny when you're at this state. It might be funny once you're liberated. That's why I think enlightened people are always basically very happy and also very amused <laughs> at what's going on. So, many Zen stories of uh, they are about people attaining enlightenment and bursting out laughing. All right. Now, notice the stories that I have told. They all are like this. Now you begin to see what's going on. For example, um, you remember the story of, of, um, of the king Janaka who went to sleep and he dreamt that the, the country had been invaded and he goes to fight a battle, 
and then he loses the battle and the, his country is conquered by the invader. And uh, you remember, many of you have heard that story. I've told it often. Um, and then, um, you know, he's driven out of his kingdom in exile. He's hungry and tired. He goes to a place where, like a soup kitchen, where, water, where food, food is being given. And that food, which he, it comes to his bowl, that is also knocked out of his hand by a kite which swoops down. And he collapses and falls down, um, bitterly lamenting his fate. And he wakes up, sitting on his bed. Uh, he, it is a, it's a nightmare. But being a philosopher, the Emperor Janaka, he thinks, was that true or is this true? In Hindi, was such, yeah, yes, such. So was that true or is this true? This could be a dream too. It could be that actually there was a war and I was defeated and I fainted. And now I think that I'm sitting up in my bed um, in my kingdom and nothing's wrong. This could be a dream. Was that true? Is this true? And then there's a whole story. I will not go through that. Finally, the sage um, Ashtavakra comes and tells him that, uh, you know, he, he asks the sage, was that true or is this true? And he says that at that time, when we are rolling in the dust and uh, we, having lost your kingdom and miserable, all this power and glory and safety and security, which you see all around you now, was all this there? He says, no. And now, all that defeat and, and humiliation and the bitterness and sorrow you felt at that time and all the experiences, you know, that you had lost your kingdom and you were rolling in the dust. And is all that there right now? The emperor says, no. Then neither that is true nor this is true. Then the emperor thinks, is nothing true then? And he says, but were you there at that time to experience that terrible dream? I experienced it. I can't deny that. And are you there here right now to experience this? even though it's false. He says, yes, I can't deny that I'm experiencing it. So then neither that is true nor this is true. You are the truth. You means that experiencing consciousness, that awareness. That is that only truth here. Now, now yes such, now was such, tum he such. Okay, so I've told this story many times. Now, your assignment is to see which part of it is uh, superimposition and which part of it is desuperimposition. It's not just a dream. The dream and the waking, all of it is superimposition. The idea that I am an emperor, I, have, I rule a kingdom, I am the dream that I had lost the empire and I was defeated. All the whole thing, including the body, including the thoughts in the mind, everything is a superimposition. And what is the superimposition? This, when the sage tells him that neither that was true, nor this is true, but what is the truth? Where is the rope? The you are the consciousness to which all of this appeared. All of this appeared and disappeared. All of it is an appearance in consciousness. And this consciousness alone is real, which, which is the one which experiences all of it. Now, this is de-superimposition. Exactly like not knowing the rope. That is like falling, Janaka falling asleep. And then experiencing a snake. So That's like Janaka dreaming. Or even is waking experiencing a snake and then correcting the error seeing it's not a snake it's a rope that's like experiencing it's not a neither the waking nor the dreaming none of them are real it's the consciousness which which into in which all of these appear and disappear that one is real that is desuperimposition so notice this whole story same method is applied as he says here all teaching is done by this method another story um, you remember 
the story of the tenth man. I've often used it. So now your assignment is to see, track where is superimposition, where is desuperimposition. You know, ten people crossed a river, and then they thought, "Well, my friend has some. Have we all crossed, or did somebody drown?" They counted. They found nine, and um, or they thought that one person has drowned. They were crying, and then uh, a wise person tells them, "Why are you crying?" And they say that our friend has drowned. And the wise person says, "Your friend is there. Don't worry. How? I'll show you. Count again." So one of them counted: one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. And the wise person said, "You are the tenth." And they realized, oh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Ah, the tenth person has been found. What joy! Now, what was the superimposition here? The superimposition was not, first of all, ignorance is at the root of superimposition. Note everywhere, not seeing the snake, and not seeing the rope. That's the first one. Similarly, not knowing um, that I'm dreaming, for example. So I've fallen asleep, not knowing the waking state, for example. That's the cause of the superimposition of a dream. Uh, here, not knowing that the tenth person is alive, that's the cause. Ignorance of the existence of the tenth person. Then, what is the superimposition? Tenth person is drowned, and it's terrible, and we are all going to weep and wail. What is the desuperimposition? Thou art the tenth. Thou art the tenth, and they suddenly realize tenth person is here. There is no cause for uh, sorrow. You remember the. Beautiful story of the princess of Kashi. Yeah. So I will not repeat all the stories. It will become story time. In fact, I have a good mind to do a talk with only stories. So just this series of stories, and then work out the the Vedanta, the the Advaitic philosophy, carefully woven into these stories. Um, in fact, the tenth man story, Panchadashi, uh, Vidyaranya uses this tenth man to tenth man story to delineate seven stages of spiritual life. From ignorance and bondage up to freedom and you know, attainment of liberation, everything. Seven so stages, just through this story. Um, princess of Kashi. Uh, princess of Kashi. So people are saying yes to story session. Yes. <laughs> uh, the princess of Kashi. You know that the person, the prince, thought that um, there is this princess whose painting he saw and thought, I will marry this princess, and if I don't marry the princess, I'll be unhappy. And finally, it was revealed to him that it was his painting done when he was a little kid. He had totally forgotten about it. So there is no princess apart from him. He is the only reality. So superimposition, that there is a princess of Kashi, and she is beautiful, and I am in love with the princess of Kashi, and I am going to marry the princess of Kashi. All of it superimposition, and the consequent sorrow. The superimposition, pointing out that thou art, O prince. You as as a child, you were painted in this way. There is no princess of Kashi apart from you. In another way, the princess of Kashi was never separate from you. You alone appear in that form. That is desuperimposition. Okay. At no point notice. Nothing. At no point had anything really happened. In each of these stories, at no point had anything really happened. But it seemed to be and a total disaster, terrible thing. And it is solved by knowledge. Knowledge of what? Knowledge of the underlying reality. Knowledge of the rope solves the illusion of the snake. Knowledge of of uh, one's own uh, of, of the waking solves the illusion of dreaming. Knowledge of painting that I am the one who has painted solves the illusion of the existing separate existence of princes of Kashi. So on. Similarly, now applying it to our case, 
knowledge that you are Brahman solves this world illusion. That I am a body and mind, I inhabit a physical material universe in which I'm struggling, tomorrow I may die and there is so much sorrow and suffering. All of this material, this illusion is corrected by the knowledge that I am, this pure, this consciousness. I like the term, this being awareness, unlimited being awareness, I'm isness awareness. This is Adhyaropa Apavada, the method of superimposition, desuperimposition. All Vedanta is this. Now this is, gives you a new lens to look at Upanishads, to look at Vedanta text and see how Adhyaropa Apavada is playing out. What will this book do now? I can tell you just in a couple of sentences. What's going to happen for the rest of this book? First of all, he's going to say, look, there is this ultimate reality, Brahman. And then he will introduce Maya. And because of Maya, Brahman appears as the five elements. And through five elements, they get mixed. And there's a process in which um, the material world appears, the subtle world appears. You know, bodies and minds, all of these are created. And so comes the individual sentient being, propelled by the individual sentient beings, karma and ignorance. A life starts, life after life goes on, cycle. And it's a beginningless and endless thing. It goes on. It will come to a really an end only upon knowledge. Knowledge of what? Then starts the next part. That uh, apavada, the negation, the desuperimposition. How do you do that? By the teaching of Vedanta. It will show you how and it will end. That's the whole story. The whole story, you must understand this. There are many implications of this. It is a method. Don't forget that. So when, when, when they... Um, I'll tell you one very interesting implication with regard to modern science. So when, when you will see, they'll talk about how fire and water and space and all of this emerged from uh, Brahman covered by Maya. And from that, from the five elements emerged this world. So very old, ancient cosmology, which they have entirely, Advaita Vedanta, notice, is entirely borrowed from Sankhya. And is mentioned in the Upanishads also. Interestingly, some places it is mentioned five elements came out of Brahman and from that the entire universe is created. In Chandogya Upanishad, three elements are mentioned. Now, um, at some place, Shankara talks about, takes up this issue. Why? I think in Brahma Sutras probably. So which is right? Did five elements come out of Brahman and make this entire universe? Or did three elements come out? Shankara says, that's not the point. Don't forget what's going on. It's a method of enlightening you. The Upanishads, Vedanta is not interested in three elements or five elements. After all, what's the truth? Nothing really came out. Vedanta, <laughs> Brahman alone exists. Now, this is a way of untying the donkey. Shankara does not say that. I'm saying it. So it does not matter whether the rope has to be untied in this way or the rope has to be untied in that way. There's no rope. And whatever works, to show you the truth. That is welcome. That's why. That's why it's crucial. That's why Vedanta is compatible with science. Because Vedanta does not make claims in competition with, with science, with physics or uh, with chemistry or biology. No. You can knock out this entire cosmology. But whatever is being said now, but we will see. These are all based, remember, it was written 700 years ago. This is all based on the Upanishads. You can knock this entire thing out 
and you can plug in modern science. Only your way back to Brahman will be a little obscure because of modern science, but it doesn't matter. And what I'm saying is, in principle, Shankara and the non-dualists will have no objection. Because they are not talk, taking this to be a, a real universe at all. Science uh, investigates this appearance and the appearance of the universe and finds out laws and regularities, which are all there. Maya, Maya is basically law, regularity. Maya means uh, the uh, measurable, that which is measurable, literally science. So all within the realm of science, Advaita Vedanta has no conflict. Somebody, you know, they say that the science pro pro proceeds by uh, testable, falsifiable claims. So one way that um, a scientist might judge something is, tell me a, an experiment to falsify that claim. By what um, experiment will I be able to see whether your claim is true or false? And if something is not falsifiable, it's not a scientific statement. So that's how people take it and they get worried. The Advaitic claim that there is pure being is not a falsifiable thing. It's uh, how would you even test it? So that, that criterion does not apply to uh, this. This is the most fundamental question uh, of, of um, philosophy of our existence. Measurability, falsifiability, these are very good criterion for testing scientific propositions. This is not scientific, this is actually much deeper than science. I was reading Heidegger in his introduction to metaphysics. He says, this is the greatest and the deepest of all questions. Uh, where did I mention this? Yeah, so uh, Heidegger says that uh, this question about why does anything exist at all? This question about existence, being. He says a whole of Western philosophy, after the Greeks, nobody ever talked about this. They talked about what is in existence and then they dis discussed substance, quality, action, good, bad, all of that was discussed, fine. But why is there anything at all? There could be nothing. Why does this universe, why do we anything exist at all? Why is there existence also? So this is the greatest question. And this is amazing. Mundaka Upanishad starts with this question. The Mundaka Upanishad says the science of Vedanta is the first of all sciences, of all knowledge. And here Heidegger, Thousands of years later, he says, this question is the first of all questions. That question, the answer is in the Upanishads. So the Upanishads recognized this several thousand years ago. This is the first of all knowledge. Sarva Vidya Pratishtha. So Brahma Vidya is the foundation of all, of all knowledge, or the first of all knowledge. Why first? Why first? Heidegger beautifully analyzes this, this question about existence itself. Why is it the first rank of questions? Because, he says three things. Because... He says, it is the widest of all questions because it is the most profound of all questions. And third, he, say, uh, he says, it's the most fundamental of all questions. What is widest, profound, or widest, deepest, and most fundamental? What does he mean? Widest means nothing at all is beyond the purview of this question. Anything that exists is included. And if you say, what is the limit? What is it that this question does not discuss? That will be that which does not exist. So automatically that is beyond... And, he's, and he even says, even that by relation to existence is also included indirectly within this question. What exists, uh, why does anything exist at all is the widest of questions. Uh, are you with me here? Widest of questions? After all, existence itself. Then deepest of questions. He says, all other questions, um, 
biology, um, psychology, um, language, art, chemistry, even deeper physics, even deeper mathematics. But the deepest of all is existence itself. So it is the deepest of all questions. It, it goes even beyond the most fundamental of physics and mathematics, the deepest of all questions. And then very subtle point he makes of most fundamental of questions. This question about existence itself, why is anything there at all? He says, it's the most fundamental why, because it is, it is the hallmark of the greatest and most profound question that it questions itself. Remember the questioner, I who am asking this question or the question itself, why is there anything at all? That's also something within the range of existence. It's also an entity which exists. I, the questioner, I am also an entity which exists. The question is also an entity which exists. So when the question asks why, it is not only question, questioning everything, it's also questioning itself. So he says the form of this question is why, why? <laughs> this is related to the question which we keep having in Vedanta discussions. Why is there Maya at all? It is the, the question is of the form, why, why? Why means causation. When you're asking why, why? So in this way, for these three reasons, what a beautiful analysis. He says, that you, he says to begin with, you must appreciate the greatest of these questions. Why it is so great? One must appreciate the incredible nature of this question. Okay. Uh, Heidegger is not a good man to quote because of his association with Hitler and the Nazis. So he is in the bad books of everybody. But um, those who are in the trade, philosophers, they will sort of admit in a sort of voice to you that he, he was the, like the matchless philosopher of the 20th century, probably the greatest philosopher of 20th century. Um, okay. Just this text and then we'll take questions. This text says, just as you superimpose a snake on a rope which is not a snake, similarly, we are superimposing the unreal, avastu, that which is not real, on the real. That means just like the rope is not known as a rope, the reality is not known as a reality. The snake is not there but it appears, the universe is not there but it appears. And by implication, by an investigation into this very appearance, into the snake, you will discover the rope. The moment you discover the rope, you will correct the error. It's not a rope, it's not a snake. Not by an investigation of snake itself will you correct it. You must discover the rope to correct the error. You must discover that Brahman, you as Brahman, to correct the error of you as body, mind, and this as a material samsara. It must be an investigation to find the reality of the, the ground of error. No amount of studying of the snake will, um, you know, reading books about snake will, will uh, enlighten you. You must see what, the, you must find out the rope, which is right there. Notice also something interesting. When you are experiencing the so-called snake, you are actually experiencing the rope. You are seeing nothing other than the rope. When we are experiencing Brahman, we are experiencing not when we are experiencing the, the world, the world outside, we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, forms, sounds, smells, tastes, uh, touch, you know, warmth, cold, heat, pressure, pain. And then we experience thoughts, feelings, emotions, ideas. When we are experiencing all of this, 
we are experiencing none other than pure being isness awareness what is in between like the snake is maya all of this will be discussed but keep in mind this is the plot i've given away the plot at the very beginning this is what is going to happen for the rest of the book first the first half of the book more than half it will go on to i'll tell you it will go on to text number text number um if you see the book it will go on to text number 136 we are now on text number 32 it will go on to 136 what is what is going to go on superimposition error so as we go through complications more and more complicated keep in mind don't take it seriously you have been warned he is going to teach you a whole deal of ancient cosmology how the universe is produced from and then tell you ha fooled you none of that is true and that will start from text number 137 okay let's take questions now my question is more uh, with the preliminaries i think in the previous classes we discussed so in um, hinduism there this philosophy is like vedanta and sankhya and all that but within the vedanta philosophy there are those schools like less advaita and advaita now these are schools within um, vedanta but they seem to have different interpretations of the ultimate reality how to approach it so i i keep wondering what's common uh, to call them like within the vedanta philosophy schools of philosophy not separate systems okay so you're right it's not that, not that they seem to have different interpretation they do have widely different interpretations so one general way of understanding all the schools of vedanta philosophy are advaita vedanta which we are studying and everything else why would you club all those other schools into everything else dvaita vishishta dvaita uh, dvaita advaita um, then shuddha advaita achintya bheda bhed these are the major non advaitic schools why would you club them together you would because there's one character one characteristic of all of them they are all bhakti schools they are all to some extent dualistic and they depend on bhakti primarily and they are not primarily knowledge based approaches which is why swami vivekananda kept them at a um, at arms length when he came and taught in the united states in america primarily he mentioned the other schools but primarily he would say non dual vedanta because here he says is a rational religion suited for this age anyway so i'm not going to now tom tom our system but yes now your question is there are multiple systems of indian philosophy sankhya yoga um uh, you know nyaya vaisheshika and many others uh so why don't we say that these different schools which are quite different from advaita vedanta why don't we say that they are also different schools of philosophy instead of including them under the umbrella of vedanta that's the basic question the question is one of text what are the sources and methods of those schools those schools are also just like advaita vedanta they accept the upanishads as their fund of foundational texts the bhagavad gita and the brahma sutras only their interpretations of the upanishad bhagavad gita and brahma sutra leads to all these widely different uh, interpretations and and different 
सब स्कूल truly strictly advaita text they have devotional uh, things too in those um, in those books like gita has devotional i mean it it doesn't stick to advaita all through so um, but then we seem to default when we say vedanta in most context we seem to default to advaita vedanta but then if we see the vedanta text there is a spread i mean there there seems to be text uh, absolutely text absolutely absolutely there are advaitic texts there are non dualistic texts uh, there are dualistic um, uh, statements within the upanishads many many um, they uh, and uh, within the bhagavad gita Uh, and the brahma sutra also there are dualistic uh, statements there some of the sutras so what the question is how do you deal with these texts so advaita vedanta what shankara does is he gives primacy to advaitic texts and then he shows because those have to be explained advaita vedanta also has to explain the dualistic texts within upanishads so what he does is he shows them as supporting so all the so the, the you know the way i teach advaita vedanta or any traditional teacher also will say so what what about bhakti what about um, you know devotion meditation all those are we to reject them no again and again all those i, I say that all of those are helpful they are all supporting and they prepare you for non dual realization look at the qualifications of the um, uh, aspirant the person must do um, selfless work the person must do upasana meditation then we'll get purity of mind concentration of mind i mentioned all of these earlier then what then then when you go to the upanishads and come across a devotional a dualistic text you will say aha here is a text which is helping me to get prepared for non dualism this is the approach of a non dualistic interpretation what do the dualists do just the opposite they will dismiss the non dual and as that it does not really mean non dualism and they will play up the dualistic uh, statements in the upanishads and bhagavad gita and say that's the point you can do both then the question remains so what what do we do follow non dualism there's no be very clear about it and also remember uh, this was the greatness of sri ramakrishna he said that all of these things are possible and they are all paths to enlightenment so is, is advaita vedanta right can you take the non dualistic texts and make the dualistic texts subservient can you take the non dualistic realization and make it the goal and make all the other dualistic practices secondary can you do that yes you can do that but equally that was sri ramakrishna's point the when the dualist comes and says no sring hari rama hari krishna be devoted to krishna that's the point of Uh, bhagavad gita can you do that sri ramakrishna would say yes you can do that also thank you maharaj a strict advaita teacher would say no you can do that it's not wrong and that will be helpful but ultimately you must come to non dual realization otherwise you will not get moksha a strict dualistic teacher uh, would say no only this is the way to uh, liberation by singing the glories of krishna and being devoted to krishna what about non dualism does that help no it does not help it's totally wrong it's false so this was the approach until um, someone like uh, say sri ramakrishna comes along and says jato mat tato pat then would come the question of 
if that is so then why are you so biased towards advaita vedanta well i am uh, i takes advaita vedanta to be central because of multiple reasons not the least of which is that it is our central tradition um, that is what we are advaitic monks that's how we were uh, the whole ramakrishna order came up in that way holy mother clearly said uh, you are all non dualists tumra sab advaitavadi ami nischit rupe bolte pari i can say with conviction you are all uh, advaitins advaitavadi that means uh, proponents of the system of advaita yeah uh, swami ji um, can questions themselves act as imaginary ropes for example in the last couple of days i seem to have tied myself into knots over a very specific question about ethics in advaita and last that i asked question about it but i i didn't formulate it well a better question on ethics would be that professor uh, ram rambachan asked at the harvard panel that you were part of yes and i'm quoting him now yes. he said vedanta is ultimately awakening us to a deep peace and joy within but what is the relationship between peace and justice what is the relationship between an inward state of joy and injustice in the world hmm. it seems to be relevant to me right now i mean yeah the, the, america etc the the answer to that is found in vivekananda's interpretation of uh, you know his practical vedanta so on the same advaitic uh, basis this tremendous call for social justice you know he said that the two great sins of india have been the neglect of the masses and the oppression of women um, and then to serve the, the one who serves the jiva the, the, that one truly loves god um, the service of uh, god in, in in you know like the service of the in the sentient being the jiva is the worship of god where is all that coming from shiva gyani jiva seva all of that the entire doctrine of service in in the ramakrishna order it's all based on advaita vedanta it's an extension it's not anything dramatically new it can be done it's an extension of that that advaitic realization if we are one then how can i treat people um, differently then how can i treat you know how can i have privilege how can i grab power how can i discriminate how can i oppress if we are one reality it's only when we are different then you can these things come into play so you can clearly see how advaita vedanta can be extended into the field of ethics very easily um so the link between peace internal peace and joy and uh, justice that's not well put i mean i think um that the link is between the realization of oneness and justice you work it out it's it's a straightforward equation oneness of all existence and justice straightforward equation in fact so to solve the problems outside you yeah. have to look inside is what what you're saying you, you have to of the self is notice inside and outside is a false dichotomy that's based on the the skin this body no i'm talking like, about the empirical world so yeah uh, so from an advaitic perspective when you make the change there is no inside and outside everything is one reality so not a separate one reality there is a pure land of bliss existence consciousness and that's far away from the misery of this world no that which you see as the snake is the rope that which you see as samsara full of injustice is brahman that which you see as brahman is the samsara full of injustice so there you have to work it out what is the implication of oneness for injustice 
it has to be combated what is the implication of um, oneness for suffering in the world if i am one with that suffering person and i wo- work for removing the suffering of this body i must for equally work for the removing the suffering of that body it advaita vedanta gives you the justification of the golden rule treat others as you wish to be treated do not treat others as you do not as you wish not to be treated uh, that's there the united nations when you enter the gen- the general assembly i mean when you enter the un headquarters no i think second floor big letters that's the most universal rule of ethics that humanity has found but i can i can question that why 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 should i treat others as i wish to be treated if i have if i have power suppose why not oppress others there is no answer in no religion of the world in no system of ethics except i'm making a clear claim here except advaita vedanta there is no answer anywhere else try it and i've seen it being discussed threadbare in uh, philosophy classes in uh, at harvard university it's a bottomless pit there is no solid ground anywhere except advaita vedanta why at all do we behave that way it's because we are identified with one little body and mind that has to be corrected from from the no from the understanding of oneness of all existence even the intellectual understanding flows clearly all the ethics of the world internal peace and joy like professor rambachan says you can have that if you are a bhakta you are devoted to god and you spend time in thinking about god singing the names of god and lead a, a decent moral life you will have internal peace and joy how is that related to uh, justice outside not related i will serve maybe somebody might say i will serve they are all children of god so i will serve that is the connection to justice yes but only in your system in your in your system what happens is they are children of god only when they believe in my religion service justice to members of my religion and for members of other religions you see the terrible problems involved in that kind of thinking only answer show me one one um, candidate which can provide which has been able to provide a solid basis for ethics in the world till today 5000 years of civil world civilization nothing uh, so this article written by swami bhajananand ji it's called swami vivekananda's ontological ethics so what how swami vivekananda uses advaita vedanta to, to provide a foundation for ethics no i th- i think I, i'm beginning to get it uh, uh, you know uh, it, it, the the separateness is an uh, a super imposition that has to be removed yes and and, and that is the fundamental uh, right aspect of it yeah religion cannot do it because the moment you say i don't believe in religion then what happens to the ground of ethics or i can if i say i don't believe in your religion i believe in my religion then what happens to your justification for ethics law cannot do it because if i can break the law and get away from it it's an external locus of ethics i don't have an internal locus virtues cannot do it you know like um, be a virtuous person why so this is a question of um of what is called meta ethics ethics deals with what is right and wrong meta ethics deals with ethics itself that why be ethical for example what is the ultimate um, reasoning for ethics what is the ultimate ground of ethics here it gives you the greatest possible ground of ethics that we are actually one and this is not dependent on believing it advaita vedanta says not that you believe in it no you 
um, you have to see that it's, it's already a, an established fact. You are invited to see this. And then work out ethics from there. So Swami Bhajananandji, in this um, article, Swami Vivekananda's ontological ethics, remarkable article. What he does is, he about 20 pages or so, he takes a survey of all the work done in ethics till now. Um, mostly Western theories of ethics, utilitarian, teleological, deontological, uh, religious ethics, and so and so forth. And then shows the defects in each. And the defects are well known. Books and books have been written on that. Then he comes to Swami Vivekananda's ontological ethics, that based on Advaita Vedanta. And I think about 10 points he gives there, the different dimensions of ethics which flow from Advaita Vedanta. Good evening, Swami. Namaste. Um, I have a question. Is, is this um, then advisable to sort of get to this point where you ask a question, why, why, and essentially it brings you to the ledge and their knowledge stops and their real self begins, kind of this realization. And therefore, when any question arises, like it's pretty quickly you can get to this why, why position and continue just being an observer in a in a whatever situation there is and whatever question there is in one's in intellect. All right, Dimitri's question is, no. Here, what you are asked to do is not philosophically inquire and um, try to solve the question of being like um, Heidegger did. Rather, what you are asked to do is you're provided with that framework. Now, actually what we will do is an inquiry into myself. Into, uh, it, it's more a, a phenomenological inquiry. This is the correct term. Phenomenological inquiry means start with experience. Advaita Vedanta, the way to do practical Advaita Vedanta is always to follow your experience. What experience? Any experience, whatever we are having right now. So when we actually get to the nuts and bolts of it, they'll provide us with this whole philosophical framework. Being, Maya, and the whole problem of why, why. Uh, and then uh, leave it there. And then the only solution is not to give a theoretical solution that how a rope appears as a snake. No, you have to see the rope. Similarly, Advaita actually gives you the solution. You have to see yourself as Brahman. That will solve the entire problem. What Advaita has been claiming till now, the structure it has set up, that there is a reality and we are in error of that reality. Advaita will actually accomplish the, you know, very dramatically. It will correct the error, actually in fact for us, not just set it up as a, as a philosophy and leave you with it. It will actually correct the error and you will see for yourself that whatever has been shown is, is a, a decent way of descri describing the state of affairs. And uh, I can, uh, like, I follow this, and um, so I've listened to some lectures that you've recorded on uh, YouTube on this, and that when I follow these five sheets, and it's it's actually very clear, I'm not my body, I'm not my mind, I'm not my thoughts, I'm not I, and then there is, you know, the subject that uh, just looks at it all without being entangled, uh, but at that point, is uh, kind of, it's hard to remain there without being entangled. Hmm. Don't worry about it. We'll see slowly. Two, two things. One is actually practically what happens is our preparation of the mind is very important. And that's what sucks us back into this uh, illusion. 
But what Advaita Vedanta also does is gives us great clarity and uh, it penetrates through that veil of illusion. We'll see how it goes. We'll see. Pranam Maharaj, how are you? Namaskar. Namaskar, I'm Bindu. Yes, Bindu. Um, yeah. yeah, okay. Uh, so my, I'm going to try and formulate my question uh, as best as I can. It's in terms of the experiencer. You often, like today, you said you are the consciousness to which all of it appeared, one that experiences. But in, when we often talk of Brahman, we talk about just the light that illumines or the space where the experience happens. So not having that... So who's the one that's experiencing? If I, if I am uh, illusory in terms of the vivharika, uh, you know, um, uh, reality, the but then the ex, you often say that you that the experience is true, but what you are experiencing is unreal, right? It's not what it seems. It's it's Brahman. It's not the Nam Rupa that I experience, but it is actually Brahman. So where is this experience happening? Is it just in the, right. not on the absolute uh, level? Right, there are multiple things that I need, you need to check here. One is, yeah. I would never say that I am illusory in the Vyavaharika or anything like that. You, yeah. uh, you are not illusory. The whole point right. of Advaita Vedanta is to say that you, in reality, what you are, not as the Bindu personality, but right. what you are, you are the absolute truth. Jiva, Brahmi, Vanapara. Yes. The Jiva, yeah. the sentient being is actually Brahman, nothing else. So that's right. the whole point that. of it. Uh, right. So at no point are you supposed to be illusory. But yes, right. your, um, your limited individuality is uh, as an appearance. Um, and then uh, another thing you said that, um, uh, so, uh, um, experience what you experience is false but the experience is true no i never said the experience is true what i said so okay. this is why you have to listen very carefully what yeah. i said was what i always said was you cannot deny that you experienced something that you are looking okay. at the world so, so for example a snake you cannot right. deny that you see or you saw a snake now what you can deny is that was it a real thing or was it an error you can say that i did see it but what i saw was not really a snake I had an experience of a snake. For example, the Janaka had this dream. When he wakes up, he can deny that it is real. He can say that nothing happened. But if one thing he cannot deny is that he saw it. So that he saw a dream. He can, after waking up, he can call it a dream. Do you follow? It's a subtle difference, but a very big difference. Advaita Vedanta um, cannot deny what you are seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting right now. That I'm seeing a world that I'm looking like a human personality with a body and mind. Who can deny it? But what Advaita Vedanta does and what you can question is, what you are seeing or experiencing, is that real or not? If you watch a movie, if you watch a movie, you see Harry Potter going to Hogwarts School of Magic, if you see a movie like that. Now you, you can always claim that actually there is no Harry Potter, there is no Hogwarts School of Magic, it's fiction, it's a cinema. But this you cannot deny, that you saw the cinema, that you saw the movie, that you cannot deny. That's a fact. That we experience a world, nobody can deny that. But the reality of the things that we experience can be questioned. That's what Advaita Vedanta does. Hmm. Yeah, yeah I, I get that. I mean, I've heard you several, several times. I get that. But then who, who's experiencing, if this mind is a reflected consciousness, where, who is experiencing in, the, in, you are. in, in reality? You are. But if I, I, I as Brahman, am real, oh. right? 
Yes. So, but Brahman is 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 not. There is not the 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 quality of is, Brahman has the quality of experiencing. Is that what we're saying? Because the way I understand is it from you is it's more like a light. It's it's like a space where things happen, where there is no you know how you say between the ego and there's no no relationship between I and 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 the pure consciousness. It's all I and reflected consciousness have have experienced, you know, have a, a relation. So where is where does this experience take place? Okay, let's answer this. Um, where does uh, uh, Harry Potter go to uh, the Hogwarts School of Magic? On the screen? No. Yeah. Does he? Is there really a Harry Potter? Is there a school? No. And is there any no. really going it's to the school? Illusion. No. No. And yet it looks like that. Hmm. Does the screen have a quality of being Harry Potter and the Hogwarts School of Magic? No. And yet it looks like that. A film critic can write a nice review about it, can tell you everything, all details about it, and yet no, not one bit of it is true. Hmm. So do you see how Brahman being, pure being or awareness, can hmm. yet hmm. appear to be uh, a knowing person called Bindu um, hmm. and a known world called this world around you, the room you're sitting in, mm. and knowledge itself. I am seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, all the while being nothing other than absolute reality or existence only. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, before I go into Rupert Spira and your talk, I would like to know what are they talking about this direct and a progressive way? Okay, we just hold it there. The talk is coming. If you have not signed up, if you're interested, do sign up for that. It's on Saturday. Um, Rupert is a very well-known direct path Advaita teacher. Um, his talks are famous all over the world. So we're going to have a conversation. It's going to be uh, non-dualism and non-dualism, deeper and deeper, nothing else but Advaita Vedanta. Now, what you have said is, uh, it's an important point. I'll bring it, bring it up with Rupert. In classical Advaita Vedanta, there is no such talk of direct path and progressive path. What has happened here in the West is, uh, because of the influence, originally of the influence of Ramana Maharshi and one Advaita teacher called Papaji. Uh, so a group of uh, Western spiritual seekers who came to them, first to Ramana Maharshi and to some of Ramana Maharshi's followers, including Papaji, who was Ramana Maharshi's follower. So they took this teaching. And so it's basically the very heart of Advaita Vedanta, the essence of Advaita Vedanta. And I am telling you that you are Brahman, not even using the term Brahman, using a term like being or presence or awareness. And then trying to show you in many ways that you are that. And if you begin to get it, then to show you that if you really get it, you will see that your, all your problems are solved. What about the rest of it? Not necessary. Just sit, listen to me, ask your questions and try to see what I'm trying to show you. That's it. This is called uh, the direct path or the satsang model. Satsang model. So it, that has become very popular in some circles, especially here in the United States, especially on the other coast. People here on this coast uh, are all, not all that sold on this, but in California, many people are very interested in this. So there are some really good teachers, and I do feel many of them, uh, some of them at least, have genuine insights uh, in, into this, what Advaita teaches. 
What about the rest of it? We just read an inquirer, fourfold qualifications, meditation, devotion, work, um, you know, all of that, the whole of the whole panoply of religion. So some of these direct path teachers, they dismiss it, not necessary, you're wasting your time. Just be enlightened. And there are, so they called it the progressive path. The progressive path said that you in the direct path, this, this what you are trying to do is a kind of delusion. You're fooling yourself into thinking that you're enlightened. They have gotten names for it, like a spiritual bypassing. You are just overlooking your problems. You have not solved your problems. You're still unhappy. You're still struggling. So many problems are there in life. What are you doing about it? You're just saying that I am enlightened. Uh, it doesn't work. If you're honest, you will see nothing has really worked. So that is their um, criticism. So where do we stand? Where do I stand? Tune in to find out. Okay. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Shri Ram Krishna Rupa Namastu